Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the world of work and how creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and rule breakers infuse their daily lives with creativity and curiosity. When you think about your words, what impact do they have on the world? Do they make money, capture attention, or disappear in a sea of sameness? Today's guest believes that words make worlds, and in this conversation, she unpacks what that means as human beings in an increasingly technologically advanced society. Rachel Allen is the boss at Bolt from the Blue, a copywriting agency freeing businesses from the bonds of bad writing with the boldest claims. We make words make money. Love it. She shares her entrepreneurial journey and how words helped her create a business that works for her and not how other people think it should be. We talk about objective and subjective knowledge, what it means to write for an audience, why she doesn't want to babysit technology, the aggressive nature of new digital tools, the boring middle, and why human is the only move left. I had a blast talking with Rachel, and I hope you enjoy the wisdom she shares throughout the entire episode. Show notes for this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 765. While you're there, you'll also find the entire podcast archive, links to the short documentary series and weekly newsletter, and the latest merch to show your love and support of the show. Rachel, welcome to Getting Work to Work. It is wonderful to talk with you today. We've crossed paths several times, and I'm just so grateful to be able to actually talk to you (laughs) instead of just crossing paths. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I know we were just chatting before we got on. Like, It's amazing how many of the same rooms we've been in without actually having a face-to-face conversation yet. Exactly. I I just chalk that up to me being an introvert and not being really good in like social situations. So I I just attributed to that. Exactly. We'll just stand in opposite corners and look at each other. Yeah. Telepathy. Exactly. It works great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love asking this question of everyone I talk to. What are you endlessly curious about? Oh, everything. So I was trying to come up with a a more concise answer uh, as I was thinking about this. And so really and truly everything, a couple of the things that I've been uh, done recent deep dives into uh, is the Lincoln presidency, uh, objective and subjective knowledge and estate law. So it's really just anything I can learn about, I want to learn about. Okay. So when you said objective and subjective knowledge in the state law and Lincoln, are they all connected or were they all separate things? <laughs> they are all separate. Okay. I don't have a big uh, like whiteboard, you know, with the strings and everything. Yeah. Um, it's just... Searching for the, the epicenter of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it's just anything that kind of like catches on to my interest. So I've got this big like 600 page hardback on uh, Lincoln's presidency that I'm working through right now, which is fascinating. Um, And then I'm in a leadership program, which is where the objective and subjective knowledge came up. And then uh, one of my clients right now actually is an estate lawyer. So I was like, tell me everything about trusts. And she did. Wow. Yeah. What I love about that too is, is it specifies things about technology that. Mm. I don't know where I'm going with this question, but like when you said 600 page book, like immediately I'm like, of course it's a hardcover book because no one really wants to sit and read a 600 page ebook. That would sound like that just feels stressful on my eyes. Like even if I was going to read it on, um, I have a tablet that doesn't actually have any lights. It just like reflects the light around it. Mm -hmm. Even on that, like I don't want to swipe that many times. Like let me turn a page. Yeah. Well, and, and I, when there are, books with that much like knowledge that much story that much um just history like sometimes just a paragraph is a wealth of information and you have to like put the book down and go do something else or at least that's me (laughs) no exactly i do the exact same thing where i'll like sit out in my garden and like read a paragraph and then like watch the tomatoes grow for a little while and then come back and then (laughs) look at the beans and yeah but you can't do that. Or I feel, I feel like it's harder for me to switch between focusing on technology and then switching back into the air quotes, mm-hmm. real world. 
Yes, I agree. And throw in like a three week checkout policy from your local library. And you're just like, that's where the anxiety comes from for me. It's like, I can't read this 500 page book in three weeks, even though I could, if it was a hardcover book and I'd be like sucked into it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Same way. So with subjective and objective knowledge, what do we get wrong about that? Because it sounds like there's a lot that we assume about knowledge. Uh, What, there's two different kinds of knowledge? This is great. Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) So let me see if I can get it out of my face. Um, Because I, like, I, I, the thing that uh, started this was Michael Polanyi's book, Personal Knowledge, Hmm. which is probably one of the most high fiber books I have ever read. Uh, It's fascinating. And his whole thesis is that we tend to see knowledge as either being objective as in like, this is objectively true, objectively false. The world exists around us. You know, I can knock on my desk and mm-hmm. it makes a sound that you can hear it's there right. versus subjective, which is, well, no, like all knowledge, like we all filter all knowledge through our own experience. Da, da, da. And he's like, cool. Both of those categories exist. And you know, what squares that circle or transcends that paradigm is personal commitment. So Mm -hmm. while both of those things do exist, Mm -hmm. it's the way that you avoid getting pulled to one end of the spectrum or the other is through commitment. And that also saves you from the incompleteness of both. Because if you Mm -hmm. follow all the way down the psychological rabbit hole of either objectivity or subjectivity, you end up in some weird places where you're like, that's just not how the world is. (laughs) And commitment is how you navigate that. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense, too, when you look at either side of that spectrum, too, of like, how can people believe in conspiracy theories? Mm -hmm. Well, they have personally committed to believing those conspiracy theories in a way that doesn't make sense to someone who's not committed to it. Exactly. And he actually talks about that, not in specifically with conspiracy theories, but with uh, different religious beliefs and cultural beliefs. And he Mm -hmm. says the reason, you know, people get into these closed circles of beliefs in their mind. And the reason that logic, you know, or, or if you come in and say, well, no, but that's not how it is. Anything you say is just going to work according to the logic within that closed circle. And so that's why it can be so hard for us to connect with people who have different commitments about knowledge, because you're like, the world is this way. And they're like, the world is very much not that way. (laughs) Right. And then throw in something like social media where closed circles can be between three people, you know, or even one person's head. You know, it's it's amazing that we uh, get anything done in this world. Yeah. I know it's it's just so, and this has been so top of mind for me is, um, is how we do that and how we connect with each other. Mm -hmm. And this is, I don't know, maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves in the conversation, but I think it's, it's words, it's connection, it's humanity. We sit there and we have a conversation and I'm like, okay, walk me through it. Like what's happening behind your eyes? Like, tell me your world. (laughs) Yeah. What do, how do people usually respond when you ask that (laughs) or make that statement? Tell me your world. So I don't normally do it quite that directly because then it creeps everybody out and they're like, I don't like, we're not at a rave. What are you, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> See, I think that's a fab- fabulous statement. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is the kind of person I want to be around. <laughs> See, and this is like, this is why introverts, I genuinely think gravitate towards each other at networking events because I can ask that to somebody in, at a networking event and you and I would have, we'll probably talk about it for the next like five hours. Exactly. Like, other people are like, I, I, what do you mean? So I go to work. Exactly. I'm like, I, like I work, I have kids. Great. Fantastic. But what I'll ask them about is I'm like, what do you think about a lot? Mm. Like what's on your mind a lot, even when you're doing other stuff or like, what do you like, what really confuses you about everybody else? Because Mm. usually that comes from like, I have something that I've committed to in my worldview and I don't understand why everybody else doesn't have that commitment. And so that can usually be an in. And honestly, though, if you just listen to people talk a lot of times, it'll just come up Mm. and you can listen without judgment and to be like, okay, like what's, what's your deal, man? (laughs) Like, what are you living in? Mm. You've mentioned words several times and you've said some amazing words already. Mm. Where does your love for words come from? I I don't know. Honestly, I've always had it. Um, I was reading just as soon as I possibly could. Um, I've just always been fascinated by them. And so Mm -hmm. I would just 
vacuum up books and knowledge like as much as I possibly could. And I still do that. And I think what's continued that uh, sort of natural love for them is just seeing how powerful they are. I mean, mm-hmm. I've built, I, I made my job up out of nothing and that was with words and I've, you know, supported myself and helped so many other people for 15 years now. And it's because of words and yeah. something that I soapbox on, on the internet, a lot about is words make worlds, you know, like that is the way that we create the world in which we live. Words make worlds. Boom. Episode title right there. <laughs> We're done. Mic drop moment. I'm going to be thinking about that the rest of the day. Words make worlds. Oh my yeah. gosh. <sighs> you know, I'm so enamored with that because I think about the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was just how small our world can be at times. Yeah. And is that a function of our thinking or the words that we use or both? Yeah, I think it can be both. And I think that it's, I think the, the smallness feeds itself. If you, Mm -hmm. if you get into a situation where you're like that, and I think it can also feed itself in the reverse. You can sort of cycle out of that with different thought processes and different words, but something I've been like screaming about, I don't know, the past two, three years maybe longer on the internet now is I see a whole lot of people who are really upset with the way the world is and rightly so things are real, mm-hmm. real tough right now. Yeah. But where I get uh soapboxy is that they'll be like, well, it's just like, that's just the way it is. And I'm like, Oh, like this stuff isn't welded into the rebar of the universe. If you don't like it, you can change it. We made it. We can unmake it. And the way right. you do that, always starts with your words because we are without our words, without communication of some form, you know, I know it's not all just verbal, but Mm -hmm. if we're not talking to each other, then I am isolated within myself. And that's, there's just a limited number of possibilities. I'm just one person. Mm -hmm. But when you and I talk, we instantly become exponentially more. And that's how humans have managed to do everything from survive back, you know, on, I don't know, the, the steps all the way up through, creating fiat banking. It's all about words. We just do this stuff together. <laughs> I'm just going to casually drop fiat banking into our conversation. <laughs> Boom, sprinkle it on there. I mean, it's perfect. <laughs> Have you found, uh, so in the 15 years of building a business out of nothing with words, mm. have you found that you gravitate towards a certain vocabulary more than others, or is it more of just this amorphous, you know, symbiotic system that of built of words that you pick from and it depends. I think the answer is both. And so I did, uh, I found myself being very entrepreneur speaky, uh, mm-hmm. in the early years of the internet. So, well, you know, early years, my early years of the internet, 2008. So sort of second wave of internet entrepreneurship. Um, there was a very specific vocabulary people used, uh, there's a fantastic book about this actually called because internet. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it, I, shake my fist every time. Cause I'm like, man, I just aspire to write a book as excellent as that. But it talks about the grammatical uh, changes in English that actually happened around that time. And it's because of the way that we talk to each other on the internet. Hmm. So had a lot of that. Um, I feel like I've done a lot of growing into my own voice and just knowing like, what of that is me? Cause I do have the kind of sassy, sweary, like witty, fast talking thing going on, but it's not exactly that. And there's a lot more, depth as well. And I think actually, as I say this out loud, I'm coming to the realization, um, that a lot of that was a swing away from academic vocabulary because I came out of doing a master's degree and was in this very like serious academic type world. And then I was like, wait, but I can like swear on the internet. What? (laughs) 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 Anyone that has come through academia and especially a master's program where certain rules of grammar and organization are embedded in the program. For me, it was the APA system Uh, mm -hmm. of just, you know, I mean, it it gets pounded into your head. Yeah. I love what you're saying though. You had to learn how to transcend that. Yeah. And, and both and it, it's not 
you don't throw it all away. There's value in that, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of freedom to move in and around it. Yeah. And I think it's just knowing, knowing, I guess what I want to say. And then it's, mm-hmm. I have the, when I have that clear within myself, then how I say it, a mm-hmm. lot of that's also going to depend on what I want, like what I'm trying to accomplish, who I'm talking to, you know, when I speak, uh, when I'm teaching or when I'm doing a workshop in, you know, some corporate blah, blah, I'm going to talk a little bit different <laughs> than if I'm teaching a workshop online with just people who come up and, you know, show up and see me. Um, and so I think it's all about, it's, it's more of a process of inflection than discovery mm-hmm. these days, I think. Interesting. What do you mean by inflection? So when I do my writing and when I teach writing, um, I say that if you want your writing to be effective, it always has to happen in four iterative uh, stages. And the first one is you have to be really clear on your message. So whether that's just like, I'm clear on what I'm doing here on this podcast, or I'm clear on what I'm teaching in this workshop, or, you know, in this networking conversation, whatever, you have to start with that first. The second thing is you think about the audience, which is how the audience actually needs to hear it. So people flip those a lot where they're like, well, but I don't know who's going to listen to me. So I need to think about what they want to hear. And then I can figure out what I have to say. (laughs) It's going to screw you up all day long, dude. Like you can't do it like that. You have to get clear on what you have to say first and then inflect it. And then the fourth and third and fourth stages, just to close the loop, our strategy, like, why are we doing it? How are we going to know if it worked? and execution. How are we actually going to execute on it? But in this context, I think inflection is just like, I've gotten very clear on my message over the past Mm -hmm. years, decade plus. And uh, now it's more of a process of inflection, depending on where I go and who I'm talking to. Interesting. I love that you bring up audience because we, I say we as all of us who are trying to build an audience, we always put them first and it can be such a mind shift to step into your voice mm-hmm. and see a different audience than you were expecting start building up around that. That's, that's pretty mind blowing mm-hmm. to me. It's so fascinating. And I think it's something that people never expect because it's so taught and it's so pounded into us mm-hmm. that like, no, like do your client avatar, like think it through. And I'm like, oh, man, it's a conversation. Like I don't go into a conversation. I didn't like create a <laughs> dossier on you before we started talking. And I'm like, well, I think Chris probably lives in a city and he likes Captain Crunch in the morning. But no, like, I don't know, man. Like we just show up and we talk to each other. Yeah. One out just- of two of those <laughs> yeah, was correct. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is. Uh, it's amazing to see the people who will gather around you, the more uh, integrity you have within mm-hmm. your own voice and message. And I, I often refer to it as fidelity, like the more fidelity mm-hmm. you have with your messaging. Interesting. One of the ways in which we cross paths was an anthology of written work called Omitted from My Obituary, which is one of the best collections of just stuff that women go through in their lives that doesn't get recognized. And you were actually a contributing, you know, essayist of, of amazing words. And in it, you talk about being able to bring in a ton of information quickly and ascertaining the purpose of that information and writing it with that purpose in mind. Yeah. Is that what you're speaking to in terms of fidelity and being able to know exactly what you're talking about with information? Yes. Although I think there's a prior step to it as well. So, um, that is definitely part of it. And I think that once you, once you can kind of learn how to read for this, this is why I can, one of the reasons I can take in information so quickly, I'll, you know, you, you read for whatever information you're looking for. But I think the step before that with fidelity is, um, let me see if I can put this in a nutshell. So the way I view the world, uh, my, my commitment is that, uh, ideas, you know, ideas exist all around us in potentiate, but they only exist in potentiate until we can bring them into the world world through words. Mm. Um, and as we do that, there's naturally going to be some distortion because, it's electricity, it's ideas, it's ether, it's whatever. And then it has to come out through my mouth or through my fingers. And reality is naturally a lossy medium. Mm -hmm. 
And so once the words have come through, they're going to be a little, like, it's not quite as high fidelity. It's not perfect fidelity, but the higher fidelity you can get to the original idea or the original intent, the more powerful the word is going to be. Hmm. Wow. That seems like a superpower. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, I've, I've, heard that and it feels like one it feels really fun like it feels fast and intense and like flying and then you know i do that and then of course i turn around and i can't do anything at all with numbers like absolutely <laughs> horrible with math so we all have our things that's right <laughs> it's interesting though you mention electricity because yeah. you know our brain is basically a system of electrical impulses mm-hmm. travel down these you know, neuron pathways to bring things throughout. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist. I have no idea what I'm saying, but it's like totally there's relation process that occurs from an yeah. electrical system into a motor system or right. a cognitive system or a, a vocal system. And I think that's where that fidelity loss probably comes from is that translation from something that naturally flows into mm-hmm. Oh, there's some, there's some words we don't understand here. There's a, there's a loss of, of translation. Yeah. And you also have to think about the reception process on the other end. So, you know, I say I've had the idea. It happens in my brain. Electricity happens. Audio waves now happen as they come out of my face towards you. Audio Mm -hmm. waves then come into your ears and go up and they get reconstituted into electrical impulses. That's so many changes. Like, of course, you're going to have some loss along the way. And that's assuming we both come into the conversation without the 10,000 other things that can cause loss. Like (laughs) one of us is tired or doesn't want to listen or whatever, you know, we've got preconceived biases. Those can also lead to a lot of loss. And so I think that's why fidelity is so important because it gives it, it gives you just half a chance of somebody actually understanding what you're saying. Mm. So when you're consuming information quickly for Mm -hmm. a specific purpose and you're able to kind of filter and find what you're looking for, how do you not succumb to bias in that moment? So, uh, I don't always do it very well. I do have (laughs) um, my own biases when I read through work. One of mine that I've noticed, especially is if I think the authors try to tell me what to do, I'm like, Mm -hmm. you don't tell me what to do book. And then I get really (laughs) really difficult about reading it. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm approaching it, uh, with a lack of judgment, I think that's, that's the key. You come into it and you're like, okay, what do you, I want to understand what you have to say as you have to say it. And whether I agree with it or not, or whether I think you're right or not, or if it's true, doesn't matter initially, because I got to get the puzzle pieces on the table first, before Mm -hmm. we can start figuring out what to do with them. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So, again, you come back to this iterative approach that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, Not just one iteration, but multiple stages of iteration. Yeah. Um, It sounds like it then becomes something that does take some time to get right. Yeah, I think it can. Um, I think in my case, it, I've just been doing it for so long and for whatever reason, my brain just takes in information that quickly. Uh, it's usually pretty fast. Um, but if it's something, especially if I get in my own way with one of my biases, or if it's like a very like chunky high fiber argument, of course, it's going to take more time. Um, mm-hmm. or if it's something that I don't know anything about. So like talking about estate law, I had to learn a whole new vocabulary for that. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what this means. Like I've never had <laughs> to deal with this. And now that I know it, of course it's a lot faster. But at first I was like, what do you mean a revocable trust? Like, what does that <laughs> tell me? Tell me things. <laughs> You mentioned earlier as well, when you were meeting people, it's like you didn't come up with a client avatar, you know, those kinds of things. And I was, I've been thinking about this one a lot since I read your chapter in the book, because you talk about this early life where you're kind of taking on these personas in order to be liked. Oh yeah. And, and we, I do that all the time. Like I take on personas to be liked. Yeah. And we also are told and taught to do that in our creative work that we're supposed to understand our client and create avatars so that we're speaking directly to them. (laughs) Like, how do you then 
having a background where you were doing that for a specific purpose, did you bring that into business at first? And were you able to transcend it into something more pure? Yeah, absolutely. Oh God, that's such a good question. Um, I've never thought about that until you said it, but yeah, it was a lot. I think that was one reason I was able to get into it uh, relatively easily was because I could subsume myself in the other person's way of thinking and, and really just take myself out of the equation entirely, which can be a really powerful way to get information, but there's a lack of um, groundedness. There's a lack of foundation in there. So that was something I've had to learn to be like, okay, how can I be me? and still mm-hmm. understand you, you know, remain committed to myself, to my integrity. And also, uh, I wouldn't say embody, but just really get you with, you know, as you want to be gotten without judgment and just really mm-hmm. be able to, uh, I don't know, it's almost like acting a role or like stepping behind your face for a minute and just being like, Oh, like what's back there? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Elevator music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've been in my head too long. (laughs) With that power to let yourself go Mm. and be able to step into someone else's voice and someone else's reality, do you struggle then coming back to you and writing things for you for your purpose? So for the first like 10 years of my business, I would be like, absolutely not. I just like, don't have time to do my own stuff. And then for the past five years, I was like, oh man, <laughs> like I totally have time. It's just hard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is, it's very hard to switch back and forth and do my own work uh, versus writing for other people. And it's, um, I I've tried different strategies, you know, nothing has been perfect, but what's working right now is I take a day where I do only my own stuff and I do it at the beginning of the week. So I, Mondays is where I write all my own stuff. And I really like actually having like a forced deadline. I work very well like that. So I'm like, cool, everything has to be done on Monday and then client work happens Tuesday through Friday. And then I get the nice. time to sort of like squeegee my brain over the weekend and start again. But yeah, no, it's hard and it's not great. And I have no good solution for it. Yeah. I, I love that you said you squeegee your brain over the weekend. Do you yeah. ever collect that material and just kind of file it away for future use? Yeah. Anything uh, that really, like, if it pings for me or if I just kind of feel a nudge, even if I'm not sure, mm-hmm. I'll write it down. Like, my notes app is just a garbage fire. There's so many things of little <laughs> phrases everywhere. Um, I'll also <laughs> do it with books a lot. Uh, I I know you can see on the... I know listeners can't see, but on the shelves behind me, there's, I don't know, several hundred books. And um, they all have like pencils and bookmarks and everything sticking out of them because it's a like a phrase I've seen where I'm like, I don't know where you go, but you're going to go somewhere. Yeah. And my uh, greatest victory with that, well, in, in like business work, I learned about the origins of snake oil shows like... Ooh. eight years ago or something. So interesting. And then I finally got to bring that into a sales page about skincare. I was like, ah, that is why you've been hanging out in my brain for so long. Now <laughs> I know. <laughs> Which makes perfect, like what a perfect connection to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're actually literally like the modern skincare industry is directly descended from the advertising claims made during snake oil shows. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. And I love the trust that your client has in your work to be able to be okay with making that connection. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, this particular client's fantastic. And I think he would have been fine with anything I put on the page, but yeah, they were like, yeah, of course, go for it. Like, talk me through it. What's the history? Let's talk about it. How do you go about building that trust between your client so that your words can not only stand apart, but make those worlds. Yeah. Uh, The first thing is just listening to them. So everything I do with every client I work with, I know a lot of people are big fans of like intake forms and stuff. I don't use anything like that. I just sit down and I talk to them for an hour and I'm like, what's like, talk me through it. Even if we don't end up working together, most of my sales calls last about that long where I'm like, who are you? Like, where are you at? What's going on? 
what do you want in your business? Why are we doing this? And we talk through everything and I just kind of get to know them as a person. And I, I also like get an ear for their voice as I'm doing that. So that if I do end up writing for them, I can sort of bring that back out of my auditory memory and put that on the page. But the trust is all about just coming to the interaction open and saying, I have these skills, but I cannot be you. And so you're the only one who can be you. Do you want to, do you want to play? You want to hang out together? What's going on? (laughs) I love that. (laughs) A a question popped up in my head as you were describing working with customers, clients, Mm -hmm. What is the difference between a copywriter and a ghostwriter? Oh, excellent question. I've done both. So a copywriter writes something in order to sell something. So like copy is sales, sales words. Um, ghostwriting is normally for books. And that's where if somebody wants to write a book, but let's say maybe um, they like they, they just don't actually want to write it themselves, but they want to have a book. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they have a whole lot of material from other things. That's when they would bring me in and be like, hey, I want to have a book about topic A. Make me an outline. I'll sign off on the outline. And then you just write it. And that's a ghostwriter. I'm seeing a lot more like out in the open ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. Like they're not as hidden anymore. There's a yeah. lot of famous person and the yeah. guy who, or woman who wrote it, <laughs> you know, that kind of uh, thing. Whoever, yeah. yeah totally. I, and I had one of those moments recently where I was so excited to read this book because mm-hmm. it was a very famous person. And on the very first page it said, and with this person. And yeah. like, I had a really hard time getting into the book after that yeah. because I think it shattered my perspective of this person. Yeah. Um, it was Rick Rubin, by the way, his book, the oh. creative act. Cause I'm yeah. like, here's this man. He's like speaking about all this stuff and Neil Strauss wrote it with him. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. are these your words? Are they his words? Like, how am I supposed to think about this now? And, and I've really had to wrestle with it because it's a very popular book in the creative world. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, am I the only person here who's bummed by those three words? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it gets back to what we were talking about with that fidelity thing, right? Because now we have two inputs instead of one. Where is it coming from? Do we know? Do we actually only have one input? Maybe this person didn't want to write a book at all. But another thing I've seen, you know, just to add a different perspective on it, I have a lot of clients who actually like, they love talking, hate writing. So I've had clients actually tell books to me. So, you know, it might be me writing the words, but they're, it's like coming out of their face still. Mm -hmm. So I think it's definitely a different experience than if it's one person uh, writing the book. But honestly, books are so collaborative anyway. Everyone that I've been involved with, every client that I've supported through that, no book makes its way into the world without, I don't know, five people at least Mm -hmm. having their hands on it. Yeah. I appreciate that perspective too, because I I really want to like be able to glean the wisdom from the book. Because as I read it, there are some really good moments. But I don't know if it's my own bias, my own fidelity when it comes to writing, getting in the way yeah, or my own just bullheaded stubbornness (laughs) (laughs) or all of the above. Like you can tell too, like, I I don't know. So a lot of times if someone has, is doing ghostwriting or whatever, you can often see unless it's done very well, there's going to be some clumsy passages or there's going to be a tone shift or something like that. So I would guess that that's what you're picking up on. There's something in it that just doesn't feel right. And so of course you're going to want to read it or be able to enjoy it to the same degree because it just feels off. It feels dissonant. Yeah. And, and I think that leads a really good transition to like technology Yeah, and how we can partner with technology in a way but if we don't watch the tonal shift between technical words or technology words and our own words, I think that's where we're going to get into trouble. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And as you know, I think this is how we actually most recently connected. Yes. Was I wrote an article getting very grumpy on the internet about AI and uh, really tech in general right now. 
And the best example that I, that sort of encapsulates what you were just talking about is I saw somebody made a post for MLK day and it said something, you know, like we honor the memory da da da, uh, And then it says at the very end, insert personal information here, optional. <laughs> I was like, oh. optional. <laughs> and this is why we don't have AI make our social media. Oh. Uh, yeah. It's and like, even what? the adding the phrase optional. I oh. know. I was just like, oh Yeah. So it's one of those things where I, my angst over it is as much about lost potential as anything else, because this Mm. could be such an incredible tool. It could be such an amazing opportunity for us to unlock so much potential and the way it's being sold to us though, and the way people are using it primarily is as, uh, do my, do my work for me, like Mm -hmm. do it for me take responsibility for me. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I'm powerless. Let the, let the robot overlord do it for me. I'm like, no, I'm like, no, we can't, this doesn't work. The only way you get anything of use out of any tool is if you are the one using the tool. Like mm-hmm. my hammer can sit in my toolbox all day long and do absolutely nothing until I pick it up and actually use it. There has to be a person using the tool, not a person deferring to the tool or, Mm. or asking the technology to do the work for them. It just, by the very nature of how these things are built, they can't do it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about Grammarly in this instance, where when I first started using it, I accepted almost every change that they made. But the more that I use it, the more that I actually sit there and go, but that's not what I meant. Yeah. And so I think that's almost a transition from being used by the tool to Mm -hmm. finally using the tool and being like, no, I want passive voice right there. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. And I feel, and I'd be curious as to your perspective on this as well, but it feels to me like tools are getting a lot more aggressive with the ways in which they try to shoehorn us into certain uses. And I know I talked about this in my article where I was like, there's this, this, prevailing approach it appears in ux design where it's like well somebody might want this feature so everybody must have it and that drives me crazy like right now my Mm -hmm. mac updated itself and now every time i put my caps lock on a little thing like floats on the screen to tell me that i have my caps lock on there's no way to disable it i'm like okay maybe that's useful to somebody let me disable it right yeah like i don't want to have to fight my tools to do the work (laughs) where i'm going to use different tools right I think uh, that's uh, kind of what Grammarly has done in that they have sunsetted the app that runs mm-hmm. natively on the computer mm-hmm. where you can create a new document, copy and paste into the document and have it check there. Yeah. Whereas now their app is present all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's popping up as you're writing and it's like, have you ever written anything where someone's like talking to you the whole time th- and you can't do it? That's well, that's what's uh, 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 yeah. That's going to feel yeah. terrible. Oh, oh you mean passive? You're, you're writing passive again, Chris. Oh my God. That sounds just awful. <laughs> it does. But it's like, I think I was so enamored with your post because it was so spot on just this, coerced mediocrity that that yeah. we are moving toward yeah because it's it takes energy to be like no canva actually i meant this no whatever da, 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 every single time right <laughs> eventually i'm just gonna be like i don't even care like whatever do it you yeah. know and then that's going to end up taking away any of the creativity you know it's going to water down filter down any creativity i have unless i am putting an active amount of energy into maintaining it there. And that's how we end up with the entire internet looking the same. Like mm-hmm. how many Facebook posts have we seen that have the exact same background, exact same captions? It's all, you know, like, have you experienced X, Y, Z? And, you know, we just scroll past them because we know a robot wrote it or mm-hmm. anything I see on Instagram, you know, unless someone is putting a lot of actual human thought into it, you see, I'm like, Oh, great. The same seven Canva things again. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's really this mediocrity thing because this yeah. is where I I rant a little bit. Please. Those things aren't actually created for humans. When people create them, they're not intending them for humans. They're intending them to feed Google mm-hmm. and to feed Meta. 
And I'm like, this is something I've told my clients over and over again, especially with, uh, they get, they get upset about SEO and they're like, but what about my SEO? And I'm like, who do you actually want to write for? I don't want to write for Google. I want to write for people. And I understand that I have to know how to play that game and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But it is absolutely frighteningly possible to end up spending your entire career writing for an audience of one, which is Google or Meta, and never actually connecting with the people you want to because you've got so caught up in feeding the internet, you forget that there's a human on the other end. Oh, my God. So writing for an audience of one, what popped into my head is like, we get shamed if we write for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yet we are praised when we write for Google or Meta. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. My mind is blown. <laughs> yeah, I would much rather write. It's more useful, I think, honestly, to write for yourself than to write for the internet because you could never fill it up. Like it's there's a scale disparity there. You are one human and the internet is the internet. You're never going to fill it. You're never going to win the game. And I think that's why it gets compelling to people because they're like, oh, but like maybe one more post or maybe one more social media channel or one more TikTok or whatever is finally going to like make the internet love me. And it just won't because that's not the point. You're not there as a creator with the internet. You're there as a product. And this is where I get so... I guess, angry and frustrated and just like, I want to shake everybody by their shoulders to be like, you are not a product. You're a person like yeah. right to other people. <laughs> Soil and green is people. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's all these like warnings in past science fiction that we just did not pay attention to. And actively we're like, Hey, that sounds cool. I don't know. Let's try that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, that okay. intended to be a warning. what came to mind too is is the whole design nature of websites now where on like a mobile device the the active web page viewing screen is like an inch tall yeah uh on a you know seven inch screen and you're just like because everything else is ads yeah and it's it's exhausting to actually read things on on your Mm -hmm. phone on a on a website that Mm -hmm. is hungry for ad revenue Yep. And I have to click out of 7,000 pop-ups and, Mm -hmm. you know, the menu isn't optimized. And so it like scrolls down over what I'm reading. Yeah, no, it's just, it's becoming increasingly human unfriendly because that's not where the money is anymore. The money is ad revenues. Right. Which, I mean, is that the example of the boring middle is finally giving up and just succumbing to this oh, well, I guess this is where the money is, so this is what we're going to do. Or is it still fighting for, no, there's got to be a better way, or there's got to be an, a, a better way for us? So I think, uh, I think, again, it's both. I think the boring middle is what we get when technology is designed with the median in mind. And so it's mm-hmm. like, well, no, we have to appeal to the median and people have to do it in this particular way, which goes back, of course, to this misconception about how humans work that's based in behaviorism, which is that humans are really fancy robots. And if I uh, input A, and then I will get output B. But that's not how humans work. It's a BF Skinner was wrong. Like, we know, behaviorism in a limited sense absolutely works. Daniel Kahneman had lots to say about it. There are lots of things that we don't understand about the way that we do just because everything doesn't make it across the dashboard doesn't mean <laughs> that it's not human, right? right? But the fundamental nature of how humans are is not based in a behaviorist system. And so that's why when I when we see technology that's designed to be like, well, but humans, when you input A, you get B. So how come this person doesn't like it? There's something wrong with them. Like, no, there's something wrong with your tool because your tool is trying to be a person and not a tool. Hmm. So do we throw the tools away or how, how do we... How do we change the nature of a tool that we have no control over changing? I have no idea. I know part of it is use. You know, if there's something that you, if there's something that tries to make you use it in a certain way and you have an alternative, if you have the option to build that alternative, that's not a skill I have, but I know people do. I know there is so, uh, there are these pockets, you know, on the internet of people building beautiful open source, you know, human friendly things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's looking for alternatives. It's realizing, and maybe this is the first step as I say that, I think it's first of all, recognizing 
that no, your technology does not know better than you. Like we all tried that with Clippy back in the day and we know how that turned out. <laughs> AI right. is a very fancy that and it can yes. do so much more and it can do wonderful things, but you know better than it. And if it is trying to tell you what to do, then you can just do something else. So I say this a lot mm. to my clients when they're like, well, but I don't feel confident in writing. And I'm like, cool, then get some help or write something and see how it goes or whatever. And they're like, but like, it's just, it's so much work to decide what graphics go on my Instagram feed. And I'm like, yeah, that's why it's a job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Of course it is. So yeah, I think the very first step is just to realize that you are the person that uses the tool. And that comes with both the, the potential for doing anything you want to do and the responsibility you have to take for actually doing it, which is the like eh, side. Right. But that that comes back to that whole personal commitment thing is, you know, when you make a personal commitment, something you are taking on the responsibility of doing it, but also the consequences of doing it. Exactly. Exactly. And like that, that sucks. Nobody wants that. Of (laughs) course you would look for an out. Like, of course, how human of us, but you just get other worse consequences in letting the tool try to tell you what to do. Because I mean, the number of boring things like boring pastelled out like Canva thingies I have seen come across my Instagram lately. Oh my gosh. Like, really? Mm -hmm. Is that what you want to be? Is that who you want to, is that the brand that you want to present to the world? You know, like, I mean, you can do that if you want to. And I know you will be coming to one of my workshops six months later being like, but nobody reads my stuff. How come? And I'm like, cause you didn't write it. Nobody's going to read it. Was how does the phrase go? Why would I bother to take the time to read something that somebody didn't take the time to write? Mm, just taking that in. I yeah. love that. Cause I think you're absolutely right. And I think we're all searching for something to take one of the tasks away from us or multiple tasks. Cause there's just so much that we have to do or right. we think we have to do mm-hmm. like, what does it look like for you to be able to finally see your job, your business as it actually is and not what someone else says it is? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, it's a lot smaller. It's a lot simpler. It's uh, I've, been able, I actually spent the past year looking at every single thing I do in my business and asking why, like, why Mm -hmm. am I doing this? Why am Mm -hmm. I doing it like this? Is there like, do I need to do it? Is there a better way? And when it comes down to it, I do like three things. Like that's all that actually needs to happen to keep this business going. And having that kind of clarity has been able to make everything so much simpler because it's like, Oh, okay, well, I don't have to worry about Am I missing out on blah, blah, blah? Or, you know, (laughs) would I make more money if I did blah, blah, blah? If I want to find that out, then I'll run an experiment and see, like, I'll try it and then I'll give it three months and then I'll look at the data set and make a decision. You know, it's not this constant, I guess, lingering anxiety that I had um, for so long. And I think a lot of my clients have, and I hear people talk about where they're like, I don't think I'm doing this right. Cause like, it seems to be a lot easier for everybody else. Everybody else seems to be making more money. Nobody is as scared as I am all the time. Like mm-hmm. everybody's got more clients. I had a whole lot of that happen last year. I wrote another post called, um, no, the apocalypse is not upon us because <laughs> I think around June or July of last year and really Q1, Q2 in general, I had people coming to me and they were like, I think something's wrong with my business. And I was like, yeah, you and everybody else, you're not the only one. It was weird. Buying cycles were strange. Everything was going weird, but everybody had isolated themselves off in their little like shame holes about it Mm -hmm. until I like wrote it on the internet and everybody (laughs) was like, oh my God, you too? Really? Uh, It comes back to having those actual conversations with people so that, you know, you can not feel alone. Yeah. Cause, cause I think. I've been in business for this will be my 18th year. Oh wow. And I I've, I've been fighting the whole damn time with yeah. what I think it should be versus what it actually is. Yeah, yeah. And it is the hardest shift to make away from wanting to be all things for all people to yeah, that's actually not it. 
that's, I'm not anywhere near where I want to be. So when you wrote about in your essay about writing yourself into existence, being able to feel in your gut that, nope, this is not where I want to be, even though you didn't know where you want. I mean, to me, I'm just like, ding, 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 give her the prize. (laughs) You know, because it was like, it gave me permission to not have to know what the answer was, but to know that the question was correct. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, yeah, absolutely. I love the way you phrase that. Yeah. If one thing that has become very apparent to me over the past couple of years in my own business, in the businesses I consult for, the answer is essentially irrelevant as long as you have the right question, because the question is going to move you to wherever the next question is. And I mean, mm-hmm. as, as I've said so many times before in interviews and just all over the internet, like the entire job of entrepreneurship is where almost nothing is your fault, but almost everything is your problem. And mm-hmm. you just solve problems all day long. That's the job. And so if you can get to the right question, that's how you keep moving to your next problem. And I think to what that comes up, what that brings up for me is just, I think I got tired of solving the wrong problems. Yeah. Because I was trying to imagine what the problems could be right. and trying to solve them as opposed to being confident in myself that when problems are actually posed, the process of going through and seeing well, what's causing the problem or what are all the inputs and the outputs like processes and all this, it's a lot more real. Um, I feel like technology in a sense is, is offloading that responsibility of here are all the problems you should be worried about. I've, I've chalked 28 inconsistencies according to these seven themes. (laughs) Exactly. According to standards you didn't make up and don't actually know if they even apply to you, you know? Exactly. Now, I love that you talk about solving imaginary problems, though, because one of my very favorite uh, pastimes in my business for the first several years was um, contingency planning eternity of like, well, but like, what if I get this client? And then if this goes this way, and then if that goes this way, you know, and I can plan like 27 layers down, which is it's avoidance, you know, it's an avoidance of actually looking at what's actually there. And it's a lack of trust in my own capacity, as you said, to solve it when it comes up. Yeah. Cause it's easier to blame yourself and shame yourself yeah. and, and be like, you know, if you would have taken that workshop, Chris, you, you would have known the answer to this. If you would have actually, if you actually would have, employees, Chris, then you would be a real business, Chris. You know, it's just all of the things that I've heard. I've, you know, we hear all, I mean, if we collected all of what the things that we hear, people would be shocked, you know, at what people say to entrepreneurs. Oh gosh. Yeah. If only you had a 90 day business plan. If only you followed my system that I'm selling for $27 a month on Facebook, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If only you, um, (laughs) If only every one of your price ended in seven. Oh yeah. No, that's the magic thing. Everybody knows that's, that's what makes entrepreneurship work for everybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you have I, to be a mastermind. <laughs> and you have to write a book. <laughs> uh, yeah. I talked why, about that. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why? <laughs> I mean, part of it has to be because that's what we're like the, the pyramid schemey section of internet entrepreneurship is built on that. I I think it was, Oh yeah. It was right after 2020 when we started having that, that big influx of people come in. I wrote a post, uh, I wrote a series of posts actually talking about the sort of the, the predatory marketing that I was seeing, um, directed towards these people and people were falling for it because like they're new, they don't know any better. But one of the things is like, well, yeah, if you just follow the system, if you just follow the rules, then everything will work out. Okay. And if it doesn't work out, okay, then you didn't want it badly enough. I'm like, Nope. It is predicated on what I call the big lie of the internet, which is that you as an individual can, should, and must do the same level of output as a multinational corporation. And you just can't do that. What came up 
so many things are coming up. This is great. Yeah. It's funny. I added a podcast for a, a client and they, they use that language a lot. Cause it's like, what's coming up for me. And I kind of yeah. like it actually. Cause it, yeah. it like specifies that you're listening and, and paying attention, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, I feel as if we are pushing ourselves to match the output of these multinational corporations mm -hmm. and simultaneously be told you can only do one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you got a niche oh. down. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to niche down, but you still have to market like your Coca-Cola. Yeah. Like, niche well, down, market up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing, like people say all the time is like, you got to get louder. And I'm like, no, like I'm, I talked mm -hmm. about this, what, 10 years ago. I was like, no, you don't need to be loud. If you want to get loud on the internet, all that does is put you in an arms race with Coca-Cola and you are never going to win that. They are always going to have a bigger ad spend than you, mm -hmm. but you do need to be heard. And there's a difference between being loud and being heard. All you got to be is heard. You don't have to be loud. What does that look like? If someone listening to this right now is, is struggling to be heard, yeah. where do they start? So we start by asking, what do I have to say? And do you really know, or are you just trying to figure out what's going to make the internet like you? And then once you know what you have to say and what you are actually selling, then it's, okay, who do I really want to listen to me? And the answer can't be the internet or my followers. It needs to be like, no, like who are we talking to here? And also like, why them? Who do you specifically not want to talk to? And so it's getting this clarity within yourself of like, okay, what do I have to say? Who am I saying it to? And then from there, you can get into some, some, some excuse me, you can get into some strategy about, uh, okay, well, where do I find them? What it like, how do they talk? I don't know. Like, where are these people? Like right now I've been going through this process with my estate law client. Cause I'm like, man, where are people when they're thinking about estate law? Certainly not, you know, scrolling through <laughs> TikTok or whatever, being like, talk to me about generational wealth, you know, <laughs> <laughs> They're at the Bonaventure senior living place down the street. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if we don't know that, you know, if we don't know what we're saying, if we're just like, I don't know, people should like think about money or something, then, well, I could talk to the whole entire world about that because we all think about that. Mm -hmm. But it's just, this is where niching is actually useful. It's niching down on that message saying, okay, man, what are you actually saying? And who needs to hear that? Oh, niching your message yeah. Oh, oh, that's a that's a shift that I haven't heard. Yeah. Oh, that just blew my mind. Yeah, because if you don't if you don't have this exquisite clarity, this high fidelity within your message, yeah. then everything's just messy, you know? Yeah. Like I love the idea of not niching your business, but niching your your message. Yeah. That that makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Because why would you like bother niching your business unless you really like doing one thing over and over again and that's all you ever want to do, which is no entrepreneur I've ever met. Like, If you want to make a widget factory for yourself, niche down. If you want to run a business, figure out what you actually are trying to get out of the business and then the business will form itself around that. Normally I ask what wisdom people would like to leave with the audience, but I think that is the biggest piece of wisdom <laughs> that I think, but is there anything you would want to add to that as we wrap up? Uh, I think just a reminder. Um, and we've talked about, we've talked on this theme the whole way through, but a reminder, something I've been saying a lot over the past couple of years is that human is the only move left in mm. work, in business, in our connections with each other. We have tried to dance around that for so long. And we have tried to, uh, to remove the human, I think as much as possible from our conversations and our business. And it's not working. Like launches are flopping courses, aren't filling. And the things that are actually working are when people sit down and they have a face-to-face -face conversation, they talk to people and you show up as human as you possibly can. Wonderful. Well, is there Apart from the 600-page Lincoln book and some of the other <laughs> things that you're reading, is there a book or a podcast or resource that is blowing your mind right now? Ooh, um, look at my shelf. <laughs> so uh, the the one that's coming to top of mind is um, there's a book called Courage to Teach by Parker Palmer. And it's nominally about teaching, but what it's really about is vocation. And uh, it was a pretty big mindset shift for me. So I would recommend that one. I would add on anything by Parker Palmer is some of the best introspective writing that you'll ever read. 
Yeah. And you know, talking about fidelity, he is very clear on his message. Mm-hmm. He knows exactly what he is saying. Yes. Well, I mean, some of his books are very, very short, but it yeah. packs a punch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being a guest on Getting Work to Work. It has truly been an honor to spend time with you and to really see what's behind the curtain of your mind. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that. It's it's truly been a, a wonderful time. Well, thank you. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me on. I kept writing down ideas on what I would use to close today's episode, but Rachel kept delivering insightful ideas and I couldn't pick. And while I want to reiterate the message of human is the only move left, yes, I want to reflect a bit instead on what she said about filing information away for use in some unknown future. One of the questions I'm often asked, and I imagine most content creators are asked a form of this question too, is how do you keep coming up with ideas? And in this episode, Rachel provides the secret. It's to constantly read and consume and file away information and not to worry about whether it's useful or not. Just trust that one day there may be the exact call for what you have learned about snake oil or about micro machines or 3D printing. By removing the pressure of constant informational delivery and having it be perfect and aligned and strategic and all those words that I can't think of right now, you can actually have fun finding and learning and chasing your curiosity. Because honestly, that's what it means to be human. Let's have some fun with what we're learning. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.